This morning we're reading from Mark 10, 35 to 45. You can find it in your bulletin, in your Bible, or right on the screen behind me. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what a perfect passage of Scripture for Brian. This is the classic passage on servant leadership. That would be perfect for him. But I just want to let you know that this, this passage of Scripture is a lot bigger than that. What this passage is about is a lot bigger than Brian or somebody involved in ministry. One commentator talked about this passage as the call to the 12 disciples to be the compassionate community, that that's what this passage is about. And so that's what I believe is the call for us as a church this morning, not just for Brian, but for all of us. The call from this passage is to become the compassionate community patterned after the servant example of Jesus Christ. And so it's a lot bigger than Brian. But I would add another thing as we go through this passage to keep in mind that I want to challenge us with this morning. It's not only bigger than one person, but it's also deeper than we thought. This passage goes deeper than we thought. In Proverbs 4, verse 23, it says to watch over your heart with all diligence because from your heart flow the springs of life. See, this is not just about serving behavior. It's not just about having a serving mindset, but this passage is about changing our hearts. When Proverbs 4.23 says, to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life, we learn that the heart is the seat of our desires, our affections. The heart is the seat of what we love. It is the seat of what we really want. And so the gospel, the good news of the gospel that we see in Mark 10, 45, where it says, a son of man came not to be served, but to serve, give his life a ransom for many. The intention of the gospel is not just to change our behavior, but to transform our hearts. It's about changing our hearts. In fact, moralism, moralism is about changing our behavior and renovating our behavior, but the gospel is about 
the renovation of the heart. And so this morning, what we want to do is take a look at this passage and invite God to challenge the very passions, desires, loves, and wants of our hearts. And so as we look at this text, as we look at this passage, I want to ask you this question. Are you ready for God to change your heart this morning? Are you really ready for God to change your heart? So how does Jesus do that? How does the gospel transform the passions of our heart? How does that work? We're going to see three things in this story. One, Jesus reveals our passions. He reveals the loves and desires of our heart. Secondly, Jesus tempers our passions. And third, Jesus transforms our passions. We're going to see those three things as we go through this passage of Scripture. So let's talk about, first of all, how Jesus reveals our passions. This is the story of James and John. Now remember James and John, you might remember them from the transfiguration story. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and also Peter. But now suddenly James and John have got this really cool idea, one at the right hand, one at the left hand, and no room for Peter in this one. This is a power grab by these two guys. So look at what happens in this story beginning at verse, verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, Jesus knows the intention of their hearts. Jesus knows human nature. Jesus knows what they're doing. But notice how he reveals the passion of their hearts in this story. In verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? You see how he goes to the heart? What is it that you really want here? And notice what they say. They come right out with it. They said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So what is the passion of their hearts that is revealed here? James and John, what they really want in their hearts is they want power, they want position, they want prestige, and they want rank. And they want to be over Peter, and they want to be over everybody else. They still have this image of the Messiah, Jesus, as a king going to Jerusalem, and he's going to take over, and he's going to rule, and they want to be one at the right and one at their left. And so Jesus reveals the passion of their hearts. There's a great, a great quote in your bulletin from Martin Luther King where it talks about how we can have desires for things in our hearts that can actually become idols. This quote from Martin Luther, he said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And so scripture reminds us that in this case, what is it, what is it that has become their God? It is power, it is rank, it is position. But earlier in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has the rich young ruler come up to him, and his God was money. And then over in the book of 2 Timothy, where it talks about how, uh, how what would happen in our culture, it said that people would become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You see, these are things that can become our idols. In his book, You Are What You Love, the writer James K.A. Smith makes this point. He says, he says, the title of the book is You Are What You Love. In other words, what is going on in, in your heart? And he says, the problem in our hearts is that we have what he calls 
disordered loves. We have disordered loves. The Bible calls us, Jesus calls us, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. These guys are already failing to love their neighbor as themselves because they want to be first. So the problem is one of disordered loves and disordered passions. Give you an example of somebody I talked with from years ago. It's just an illustration. It might not be one that it would be the very thing that, uh, that you and I struggle with, but there was, a, there was a couple that came to me for marriage counseling. And as I learned about their story, they had been recently married, and what the wife said to me about the husband, what she told in, in his presence, he would spend seven hours every day gaming. What gaming meant was that he would play games, war games, online with people from all over the world. And so he was so obsessed with these war games and so obsessed with that being in his life is that it affected his work. It affected his marriage. The message that his wife got day after day, week after week, month after month, is that he could spend seven hours at night not talking to her, but he was so obsessed with these war games. And so you listen to that story and you think, what is going on? Well, there are disordered passions that are going on in this gentleman's heart. Disordered passions. He, he, had a, he had a love for gaming. He had a passion for gaming, and it had gripped him, and it had compromised his marriage, his relationship with God, his work. It had compromised everything. That's what can happen when you have disordered loves and when, when we have those kinds of passions. I want to ask you a question about that this morning. Has Jesus ever revealed the disordered loves of your heart? Now, if you think about that for a second, I, I was reviewing this passage just this morning. I just wanted to go over it one more time, just make sure I understood it, make sure I was getting it correctly. And God used this passage to rake my heart over the coals. Because see, in my heart now, I still struggle with these disordered loves that we talk about, these idols, these things that I want that God doesn't want me to have. Disordered loves, Jesus reveals our passions. Now, it's interesting how Jesus responded to them because he didn't, he didn't upbraid them, he didn't condemn them, he did not yell at them, he did not sort of uh, publicly expose them. But Jesus does give a response, which is the second part of our sermon this morning we see in this passage, is that Jesus not only reveals our passions, but he tempers our passions. What do, what do I mean by tempers our passions? What he does is he begins to contain, our, he, he begins to suppress, he begins to work in our lives. He tempers our passions. I want you to see what he does with James and John in this passage, look at verse 38, his response. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with, with which I am baptized? It's interesting how what these guys want is the crown. They want the glory. Jesus begins to talk with them about the cross. The disciples have struggled with this the whole time. They want the cross, they want the Messiah, they want the king, or excuse me, the crown, but they did not want the cross. 
And so Jesus asked this question, and what does he mean? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What does the cup refer to? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup referred to the drinking of divine judgment. It was the cup of God's wrath. And what Jesus is saying here is that I'm going to do something that no, that no one else can do. I'm going to drink the cup of divine judgment against humankind. Can you drink that cup? That's what he asked them. And then he says, he says are you, are, can you be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? What's Jesus talking about there, about baptism? If you go back to Mark chapter 1, we see the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, in his baptism, was not someone who was a sinner. He was perfect. But what Jesus did when he was baptized is he, at that moment, identified with humanity. He says, I am becoming like all of humanity. He is becoming our substitute. He is putting himself in our place. That is the gospel. And so when he says that on the cross he's going to be baptized, what he means is that once again, he is putting himself in the place of humanity, and he is the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who takes upon himself the sins of the world as our substitute. And once again, he identifies with humanity. And Jesus is saying, can you guys do that? Now, it's, it's interesting to look at their response. Verse 39, it says, they said to him, we are able. And then Jesus talks to them about another type of, of cup that they're going to have and another type of baptism. They will identify with him, though, in his sufferings. And Jesus wants to let them know that if you're going to follow me, if you're going to live the Christian life, it's not always going to be about the crown. Sometimes it's going to be about the cross. Sometimes it's going to be about suffering. So he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, you really will suffer. And that happened. In James, James was martyred. You go to Acts chapter 12. He indeed was martyred for following Jesus. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. He suffered for Jesus. And here he's prophetically saying that's going to happen to them. And then look at what Jesus says to James and John in verse 40. He gets back to their actual request and he tells them, I cannot and will not grant that to you. Verse 40 says, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Do you see what Jesus is doing to temper their passions? These two guys are wanting something so bad in their life. It's like our friend with the gaming, or it's like people that are obsessed with money or obsessed with pleasure or obsessed with power. They want it so bad, and Jesus is looking at them, and he's saying, that will not be granted to you. Have you ever had to hear God say no to something that you really wanted? There are times in our life where we want something so desperately and it's, almost, and it's so bad that we're putting it before God, it's become an idol and God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that out of your hands. And that is so difficult for us to hear a no from God, but that is what's happening in this case. And Jesus is tempering their passions. I can't tell you how many times in my life where I have wanted something that God chose not to grant me. And it's hard to accept the sovereignty of God in that situation. I wonder if some of you this, this morning are thinking about that, that there's something in your life that you really want. It's a relationship, it is a job, or it is a position. 
It is a position of prestige and notoriety, something you feel like you deserve, something you want to hear from people, some kind of recognition, and God is saying no to that. Do you realize what that does to your heart? Do you, do you see how that tempers you? Some of you might recognize a story that I've told a couple times, but I think it really is, is relevant to what these disciples are going through. Back in, uh, our son Jonathan was born in 1980, and during the late 80s, Jonathan tried out for the football team. He was gonna be part of this, this uh, sort of, you know, elementary or middle school type of football team. <clears throat> and I remember when Jonathan and I would play football, we lived in a cul-de-sac up in Richmond, Virginia, and back in those days, there was a famous quarterback by the name of Joe Montana of the San Francisco 49ers, and his wide receiver was the best wide receiver ever, a guy by the name of Jerry Rice. And so what Jonathan and I would do when I would train him to play baseball or football, I would take that football and he would go out for a, a, a pattern, a pass pattern, and I would toss it to him and I would lead him and it would just fall in his arms. And it was so cool to play football together. And we could just imagine, I'm Joe Montana, he's Jerry Rice, he's gonna have this great position on the football team. And so he gets so excited about what's going to happen. Well, he got on the football team, the coach looked at all the players, and the coach made the decision about where Jonathan would be. And you know what, you know what Jonathan's role became? You guys, and this broke my heart as a dad. I mean, it's, you know, but this, the coach decides. Jonathan was the guy who on the kickoff stood on the 50-yard line, lifted his arm, and when he dropped his arm, then the kickoff would happen. Now, that's a pretty important role. That's a great role. But it wasn't Jerry Rice. It wasn't wide receiver. He did not get what he wanted. And so as a dad, I had to sit down with Jonathan and talk about the fact that he did not get what he wanted. In effect, his, his desires were being tempered. Here's what I said to Jonathan on that day. And it's something I've got to say to myself all the time that you need to say to yourself. I said to Jonathan, look, where you play is up to the coach. How you play is up to you. And isn't that true for us? We don't always get what we want. Where we play is up to the coach. But how you play is up to you because God's interested in how we play. He's interested in our character and the kind of people and the kind of heart that we have, but do you see that Jesus not only reveals our passions, but, ben, but then he begins to temper our passions. It's interesting with the Christian life because, you know, this kind of sermon, you guys could walk away and say, great, I, I need to go and be a servant. But think about the fact that what Jesus wants to do is a work of grace and a work of the gospel in our hearts, and so what he wants to do is transform our passion. So that's the third point that we see here in this passage. Jesus not only reveals and tempers our passions, but he transforms them. I want you to notice something in verse 41, because you this is the famous story where the other ten disciples are finding out what the what James and John have done. So look at verse 41. When the ten out of the twelve, the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. You know, this is, um, this is such a great verse because in, in some ways you go, what's going on in the hearts of these guys? 
William Lane, who has a great commentary in the Gospel of Mark, said that this reveals something very interesting about the raw material of the disciples and how Jesus wanted to transform their hearts. Listen to what William Lane said. He said that in this passage we see that selfish ambition and rivalry were the raw material from which Jesus had to fashion the leadership of the incipient church. Can you identify with these disciples? Can, do you realize that one of the things that Jesus does when he calls you, as a, when you become a Christian, when you get involved in the Christian life, when you get involved in the church, is that Jesus wants to, we are the raw material from, from which Jesus wants to fashion and transform his church. That's what's happening in this, these, with these disciples, and that is what happens with us. Let's go on. We see the disciples, and then Jesus finds here a teachable moment, and what he does is he takes them to school. And that's why it's so important when we encounter those roadblocks, when we don't get our idols satisfied, when we don't get what we want, our passions have been tempered, to get with Jesus and let Jesus take us to, take us to school. So verse 42, Jesus called them to him, to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And look at verse 43, where he redefines greatness. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Do you see that the kingdom just turns everything upside down? He says that the rulers of the Gentiles, now that's probably referring to the Roman rulers. They had a domineering, top-down, authoritative ruling style, and Jesus says, I have a better vision for you. That is not what you're called to as leaders in the body of Christ and as people in the church. You are called to serve and that greatness comes through serving. This whole idea of lording it over is such an interesting temptation for anyone who gets into a position and anyone who leads out this temptation of lording it over. That is what happens in the world. What God has called us to is to be where our love, our love for people is expressed in serving. He's called us to be that compassionate community. And he said that first of all, Greatness is redefined by service. And then he not only gives us a better vision that is different from what we want in our hearts and it's different from the model in the world, but then he points to his own life. This is what I loved about what Jonathan Coley said because I don't, we didn't coordinate this, but Jonathan talking about uh, John 13 where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That is, that is the picture that we see in this passage. So if you look at verse 45, this is the gospel. This is why, this is why the gospel is different from moralism. Moralism is about changing our behavior, but the gospel changes our hearts. So look at these words of Jesus. He said, for even the Son of Man, this is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who was in glory, who would have dominion over all things. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Mark, over and over, Jesus has tried to tell him, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. But this is the first time he, tell, he gives the reason for his death, the why behind his death. He says it is a ransom for many. That word ransom, that word ransom is freedom 
through the payment of a debt. It's the freedom of a slave, the freedom of a prisoner of war, but Jesus paid the ransom for us. Jesus paid for our sins, and he released us, and he set us free. And you guys, that is the gospel. That is what Jesus did for us. And service, service in the church is rooted in the example and the power of Jesus. I was reading what um, Dale Bruner, who talked about these words of Jesus, what he said about this very comment and how God, if we fix our eyes on this, if we realize the nature of what Jesus did for us, how it would change us. And here's what, here's what Dale Bruner said. He said, as believers learn, okay, so that's all of us here. Remember, it's bigger than just Brian, bigger than anyone else. As believers learn the redemption and liberation made for them in Jesus' one sacrifice, they find themselves moved to make themselves servants in their little piece of the world. Do you see how the gospel changes us? Do you see how the death of Christ changes us? What he did for us changes us. So you might be asking at this time, we've seen how Jesus reveals our passions, tempers our passions, how he transforms our passions. I might say, by the way, to all the children in this room, this passage is bigger, as I said, than Brian, but it's bigger than just your parents. As you kids, you might walk away from this message today and think, you know, I need to serve my brothers and sisters. I need to serve my parents. I need to serve my friends. This is a powerful passage for all of us. And so you might be asking several questions this morning as we wind down and apply this passage to our hearts. You might be asking, Mike, are you saying that Jesus in this passage redefines greatness? And I'm saying yes, that is exactly what he does. He says greatness is in service. Are you saying that true greatness is actually found in serving other people? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So think about your heart, think about your life. And third, are you saying that this message from Mark chapter 10 is designed to change my heart and to change my life? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Think about your heart. Think about letting the gospel renovate your heart. And so the final thing might be, some of you might be thinking, as James and John could have, if I'm going to step into this, if I'm going to see greatness as service instead of position and power, if I were to do that, will it be worth it? Will I be as famous as I want to be? Will I be as rich as I want to be? Will I be as comfortable as I want to be? Is it really going to be worth it? And I would say, yes, it is worth it. Because this Jesus that we see in verse 45, who was the son of man of Daniel chapter 7, who came to earth, who lived the life of a servant, who gave his life a ransom for many, was, was risen from the dead, has gone up to the right hand of the Father, and now reigns in glory, and we crown him with many, many crowns. And so we follow the pattern of Jesus, and we cast all of our crowns upon him. Would you pray with me? Lord, this passage can be so challenging and so searching. Lord, many of, this, many of us in this room could feel raked over the coals by this passage as I did this morning. But Lord, we, we bow our knees before the reality that there is only one in all of history who's been the perfect servant. 
And that was Jesus who gave his life a ransom for many. So would you enable us this day to give glory to you and to crown you with many crowns. And we pray these prayers together in Jesus' name, amen.